Welcome to Insight, live at noon with a rebroadcast at 7 p.m. California's latest budget forecast is in, and the projected deficit is worse than before. A $73 billion shortfall, but it's kind of open to interpretation. Ahead on Insight, we'll dive into why this latest budget forecast is drastically different from other projections from just weeks ago, and what tough financial decisions lie ahead. Also, with the primary less than two weeks away, Placer County voters will have new ways to cast their ballots. The county joins us about the new changes and how the elections office is preparing. Finally, we'll learn about a play at UC Davis, inspired by the murder of Matthew Shepard, a gay college student whose body was found in the small Wyoming town of Laramie, and how the production examines homophobia 25 years after the murder. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. That's all coming up today on Insight. From Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. If you go by the latest projections from the Legislative Analyst's Office, California's budget deficit is getting worse. The LAO, which provides nonpartisan fiscal advice to California lawmakers, revised its January forecast from a $58 billion shortfall to a now $73 billion shortfall. But the LAO is just one fiscal analyst arm of the state. Last month, Governor Newsom's budget forecast from the state's Department of Finance projected a deficit as well, but a lesser shortfall of $38 billion. We're going to dive into the why in just a moment. But no matter who is more accurate, the deficit is easy fuel during a pretty big election year. And ultimately, lawmakers and the governor will need to make some serious decisions ahead of a budget revision that is known as the May Revise. Joining us to discuss are H.D. Palmer, Deputy Director for External Affairs with the Department of Finance, and Cap Radio Politics reporter Nicole Nixon. Good afternoon. Hello. Hey, Vicki, how are you? Doing good. Thanks for making the time, H.D. Okay, Nicole, I want to start with you. Uh, for someone who isn't really aware of all the inner workings of the state capitol, what is the Legislative Analyst Office, the LAO? What does it do? Yeah, the LAO is an office of analysts that advises the legislature on fiscal and policy matters. Um, several dozen, I think around 60 analysts in this office, and they are a nonpartisan entity. And they advise state lawmakers, correct? correct? So the legislative arm. And so when it comes to the budget cycle, there are some pretty important dates that you always remind us of when we're talking about the state budget. So let's get a refresher. Yeah. So uh, in January, early January, the governor is constitutionally required to present a balanced uh, spending plan for the upcoming fiscal year, which begins in July. Um, those, you know, that's a very early uh, thing because a few months later in April is tax day. After that is when the state has a good idea of how much money Money there actually is to work with. So the governor comes back in May and proposes a revised spending plan. And then after that is when the the negotiations between what is called the big three, the governor, the assembly speaker and the Senate president pro tem uh, really ramp up negotiations between those three uh, to come up with a, a balanced budget uh, that the legislature is required to pass in mid-June so that it, the governor can sign it by July 1st. So about a month ago, as you mentioned, the governor did release uh, the January proposed budget. It does follow a pretty unprecedented year. If you can right. just remind us what happened the January prior, which really delayed tax filings for the vast majority of counties in California. Exactly. This is a unique budget year, not only only because of this deficit, but because that tax filing deadline, tax day, usually in April, was delayed uh, because of the uh, extreme winter storms we saw last year. So that tax day was a bump to October, then again bumped to November. Um, so not only are these taxes coming in below projections, the state is finding out about the scope of this problem months after the fact, months after it usually does. So just to review the deficit. A lot of, no- a lot of numbers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, the deficit sort of uh, where it's been. In December, the LAO came out and said the deficit was going to be about $68 billion. Um, In January, Newsom proposed, you know, laid out his spending plan. He said it was a $38 billion deficit, much more optimistic. The LAO a few weeks later looked at that and said, well, actually, you're saying it's a $38 billion deficit, but you're actually solving for a $58 billion um, budget problem here. So 
Uh, and we can get into the, that $20 billion difference. So now it's been a month. Uh, the tax collections are still coming in below expectations. So that is why the LAO is now pegging the deficit at $73 billion. And as I mentioned, the LAO is just one fiscal arm of state government. HD, you're with the Department of Finance. How does the Department of Finance work differently than the LAO's office? Sure, uh, Vicki, there, there are always going to be differences between the estimates that we do here at the Department of Finance and the legislative analysts. And that's that's for a couple of reasons. One is the timing on when we take our snapshots of the economy and revenues. We have to, in a normal year, lock our forecast down in late November, early December. Um, the legislative analyst normally has a little more time to do that. Uh, the second reason is we have different revenue projections. Economists and forecasters can look at the same group of economic data and draw different conclusions. The third broad reason is different assumptions on on spending patterns and what actions are needed to be taken on the spending side of the ledger. So um, Nicole kind of nailed it in terms of the run up to where we are. Our our budget was projected, our budget shortfall was projected in January at $38 billion. The analyst was higher. And what the analyst has done now, I don't mean to speak for them, but I think it's fair to say, that they've taken a short-term look at what cash receipts have been since then, and they've kind of projected out what they think based on that one month, um, the shortfall may be revenue-wise three or four months down the road. Um, We'll have to see how that turns out. We've got about $51 billion between personal income tax and corporate income tax that's due to be received over the next three months. A lot can happen with that. It could be higher or lower. One of the things that we here at finance try to caution against, either in a good time or a bad time, is not to take one month's worth of cash data and tr- extrapolate out a long-term trend. And the and the reason for that is a lot of things can affect the timing on when we get our money. It's sometimes as simple as whether the first day of a month falls on a Friday or a Monday. To give you an example, we just published our recent revenue bulletin for the month of January that showed that receipts were about $5 billion overall below the month's forecast. One of the components of that is personal income tax withholding. We were down, relative to our forecast, we were down a billion dollars in January. However, what we don't show there is we were actually higher by a half a billion dollars in December. And even a couple of days uh, in terms of when we get our receipts can have significant swings in those numbers, which is why we caution, again, in really good years as well as not great times like right now, we were careful not to take one month's worth of data because of those variances and extrapolate out or say, based on this, we're going to have this much of a surplus or this much of a shortfall, just because things can significantly change. One of the things that can change, obviously, very significantly that affects our revenues is what's going on in the financial markets. And that's because the stock market, and we can get into this later, plays such an important role in, in the personal income tax revenue that we receive in California. That's why it's called a forecast and a projection. But even using the January projections from the LAO as well as the Department of Finance, $58 billion versus $38 billion in terms of a shortfall, that is still a $20 billion difference that may be right. hard for Californians to understand. What do you want them to understand about how that's possible? Um, it Again, comes down to just some fundamental differences between our projections in terms of revenues. We don't take a forecast and say, let's run it up because we don't like the number. Let's you know erase it and put in or white it out and put in another $10 million. That's not the way we do forecasts. That's not the way the LAO does their forecast either. We project that based upon what was going on to get back to the stock market, 2022 is a very bad year for the markets. Uh, the S&P 500 dropped 19%. The NASDAQ, which is an index of 2,500 tech-heavy stops, dropped 33%, the biggest drop since the 2008 Great Recession. Why does that matter to California revenants? It's because the very small group of taxpayers who primarily get a lot of their income from things like capital gains and stock options and uh, bonuses tied to stock performance, um, that's personal income to them. So when the markets are doing well, they're doing great. And so are our revenues and the in the reverse is true. And so one of the things that happened was 20, 2022 stock market really hurt those investors and those taxpayers. And we saw a dramatic drop in revenue. As Nicole mentioned a moment ago, 
normally we would have had that information in hand last April when the tax receipts came in. But because of the unprecedented delay that the IRS had given the California taxpayers because of last the winter storms from last winter, we didn't get a lot of that cash date until November, December. Neither did the LAL. And what happened was that our um had we we received about $26 billion less through November than we had projected back in May when we were having both to do our best estimate on how bad it was going to be. Had we had that $26 billion shortfall data in hand last spring, our deficit problem would have been bigger. Uh, the, the solutions to close it would have been more expansive. And the shortfall that we face today would have been a lot smaller than it is either by our yardstick or the legislative analysts. Mm. So a lot of the a lot of factors come into play there, but part of its timing, part of it is the unusual nature of last year that Nicole was talking about. And part of it just has to do with differences in timing and forecasting. At the end of the day, we're going to have our numbers are going to be updated, as are the legislative analysts. Um, barring any big change, we hope that there's no delay in tax receipts. Um, so April should be a quote normal end of quote month when we get our cash receipts on time and we've got a more accurate handle on what things look like before we revise the budget in May. Uh, do you expect, given that the LAO came back with a higher shortfall, like a $15 billion um, increase in shortfall this month, do you anticipate going back and, and increasing projections for a shortfall? Because currently it stands from the Department of Finance, Governor uh, Newsom's office, $38 billion as of January. The next update that we'll do on our shortfall estimate, Vicki, will be in May. That's when, as, as Nicole was saying, we present what's called the May revision or revised budget. And, and the reason we do a revised budget in May is simple. Things change in the economy over the course of four or five months since we do the January budget. Obviously, April is a significant month for tax receipts. It's the largest month uh, of all 12 months for when we receive income tax payments, uh, as everybody who files on April the 15th knows. So, Based on that critical cash data that we get in April and based on changes in the economy and on spending and on other things that are going on, we update our forecast both on revenues to take them up or down, depending upon what the circumstances are, update our spending projections. We either have a larger or smaller shortfall this year. And a few years ago, it was the happy situation of a larger or smaller surplus. But in this case, it's going to be a larger or smaller shortfall. And we'll update that in mid-May. And that begins kind of the discussions in earnest about the final budget that has to be done by June the 15th. Does the Department of Finance communicate with the LAO or do the two of you work independently? Uh, we we uh, communicate on a regular basis. Um, we have we do an economic outlook conference in November where we bring in outside economists from state government to basically look at our preliminary numbers and say, lift up the hood, kick the tires. Are we too high here? Are we too low there? Are you people seeing anything in your expertise area that we ought to know about? And based on that information, we go back and fine tune or calibrate our forecast. The legislative analyst sits with us at that table. They're fully aware of the same data that we are. We, we share data on a regular basis. We oftentimes come to different conclusions because of different estimates. Um, and this is certainly a larger difference, but there will always be certain differences between our projections and the analysts. And that's a function of, of timing and how you know, two different entities can look at some of the same data and draw different conclusions. Yeah, Nicole, given that um, your wheelhouse is state politics, like you've been following state budgets from one year to the next, but talking about this latest one, what stands out to you about these budget projections and how they they can differ and they also can be updated in, in pretty drastic ways? I mean, yeah, I think that um, obviously lawmakers are very concerned about the budget. It's like their top priority at this uh, for the session for this first half of the year. Um, we heard from the Assembly Speaker Robert Rivas yesterday. He talked with reporters. He noted that it's early in the budget process. He has not met with the governor on that yet. But, you know, he's concerned with the deficit. He's concerned with relying too heavily on the state's rainy day fund, which currently has about $38 billion in it. Here's him talking about that. And I feel very strongly about, you know, we can't have these short-term uh, some solutions for a long-term problem. You know, uh, when you talk about utilizing reserves, that's why when I mentioned we've got to be very prudent, is we don't want to find ourselves in a scenario where the deficit is only going to balloon further in future years and we're going to have less reserves as a backup. 
Newsom now only wants to draw, withdraw about half the money in the state's rainy day fund, around $12 billion. Um, but the governor's spending proposal from last month would save about $10 billion for this deficit in some of those short-term fixes that Rivas says he's concerned about delaying spending to future years, uh, internal borrowing from other areas of the state, shifting how things are paid for. So um, I think it'll be very interesting to see how legislative leaders deal with this. Now, on the other side of the aisle, Republicans love to point out that Democrats, um, they feel, are overspending. And they point to things like high-speed rail, the amount of money the state has poured into homelessness um, as, you know, areas that they feel the supermajority in California is overspending tax dollars. Mm. What also stands out to you uh, about what Riva said when he gave his statements and talked to the media yesterday? You know, um, it's that short-term thing. I think it'll be... It'll be really interesting to see how lawmakers deal with this. Um, The other thing worth noting is Rivas is less than a year into this position as speaker. The Senate um, just installed a new leader a few weeks ago as well. So the former leaders, Anthony Rendon in the Assembly and uh, Tony Atkins in the Senate, will no longer be at that negotiating table with Newsom after five, six years of those two. um, Those three uh, negotiating over the budget will be, um, you know, new legislative leaders. So it'll be interesting to see, I think, how that goes. And again, here's um, uh, Revis talking about another way the Assembly wants to deal with this. We're very concerned about short-term fixes for long-term problems. You know, clearly we need to prioritize oversight of current spending and of our investments. Our budget subcommittees are actually getting to work on this oversight just this week. That spending oversight is something that Rivas and a few other lawmakers are really pressing this year. Um, But these budget hearings in the legislature are just getting started. So it's not totally clear right now what areas they'll be looking at and what might get cut based on these hearings. Yeah, HD, you have such important perspective because this isn't your first budget rodeo. I mean, you have been with the Department of Finance for governors across party line for both Republican governors and Democratic governors. What stands out to you about the budget situation and the shortfall that the state is facing this year? A um, couple things. I, first, I'd like to go back just for a moment to the the speaker's comments about uh, the reserves. The, the administration agrees. Even the, uh, Nicole is absolutely correct. The governor is proposing to withdraw only half of the balance from the state's rainy day fund of the budget stabilization account. Even after those proposed withdrawals into the governor's budget, we will still have reserves of more than $18 billion uh, next year. Um, and so the governor recognizes certainly that, you know, downturns can be, go longer than one fiscal year. And, you know, there are a lot of significant amounts of reserves that will remain even after we withdraw from the budget stabilization account, which is the formal name of the rainy day fund. And that, and what, why we're, why the governor is doing it is kind of the title for the reserve budget stabilization. So we don't have to make difficult reductions in core programs and services that affect, for example, the most vulnerable Californians. Um, that's what's different. You, you mentioned what's different from past uh, budget uh, difficulties. We have a reserve now. We have a, a dedicated reserve, this, the rainy day fund that we didn't have in past downturns. Um, when Governor Schwarzenegger had to deal with a dramatic shortfall in the Great Recession in 2008-2009, we didn't have the the insurance policy that we do now. And I can remember very vividly discussing some of those proposals, which would be, for example, uh, eliminating the state's welfare to work program, which is on the on the books an optional program. And that was not proposed as a as a smarter sound policy uh, decision, but a way to deal with a dramatic shortfall. Um, even though we face a great challenge in closing the shortfall, to the extent that we have a benefit from before, we do have substantial reserves that have been built up and the governor has been you know, very insistent in recent years about let's build up the budget reserves that we have for not only the, the rainy day fund, but things like the safety net reserve, which has $900 million in it. And that was specifically money that was set aside to deal with health and human service programs that provide needed services uh, for vulnerable Californians. We're not proposing to drain that reserve. The governor's not. There's still about, oh gosh, uh, a significant amount of money that re- will remain in a number of reserves. $3.4 billion next year 
in, in the Special Fund for Economic Uncertainties, the state's traditional budget reserve, nearly $4 billion in the budget reserve for schools. So there are proposals and we and we may take, you know, there, there may be further proposals to take those re reserves down. We don't know yet because we're, we're going to have a much broader, much better, a much more timely picture of where things stand several months from now when we get those tax receipts in and when we update our forecast. HD, thank you. You bet. Thanks for having me, Becky. And Nicole, never a dull time for you. <laughs> Thanks. H.D. Palmer is the Deputy Director of External Affairs with the Department of Finance, joined by CAP Radio Politics reporter Nicole Nixon, and they are unpacking the latest projection from the LAO that is projecting a budget shortfall of $73 billion. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, CAP Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. The primary is less than two weeks away, and this year, voters in Placer County will see some changes. For the first time ever, the county will be following the election model that was laid out in California's Voter Choice Act, which was enacted in 2016. The act, which counties can actually choose to opt in, was designed to make voting more convenient and accessible for both in-person and those who cast their ballots by mail. But adopting this new model also means new changes for the county as well, at a time when many places around the country and in the state are experiencing shortages in poll workers and increasing concerns about safety and security. Joining us now is Ryan Ronco, the Plaster County Registrar of Voters, to talk more about how the office is adapting to the voters' choice model and preparing for the upcoming primary. Good afternoon, Ryan. Good afternoon, Vicki. So this year, 2024, is a big election year. It also comes, obviously, with some changes for Placer County voters. For those who need a refresher on the Voters' Choice Act model, what is it and what can voters in Placer County experience? Well, the Voters' Choice Act is an opt-in program, and Placer is opting in this year, uh, where uh, instead of having assigned polling places, a county can now uh, have regional vote centers. Uh, they are open uh, many more days than a traditional polling place. So some will open this Saturday in Placer and around uh, our region. And then the remainder of the vote centers will open up the following Saturday. Uh, and here in Placer, we have 29 vote centers, seven will open this Saturday. And then the rest, 22 more, will open the following Saturday. And it's the same as a traditional polling place, except for they're open for more days. And uh, now there are some new laws that we can take advantage of uh, that will allow for more choices for people when they want to actually enter a vote center. So essentially providing greater flexibility and, and convenience for voters. Uh, that's correct. Uh, when we uh, we test drove uh, vote centers, many counties did. Uh, back in uh, November of 2020, when we were in the midst of the pandemic and we had uh, a lot of locations that didn't want us in their uh, in their uh, site uh, for health concerns. And then, of course, we didn't have very many volunteers then either. And uh, at that time, we in Placer County didn't have any voters complaining about the distance that they might have to drive, which was maybe a little bit greater in some instances. Uh, but uh, because of the flexibility in uh, vote centers where a voter can go to any vote center in the county and cast a ballot, not 
just to their assigned polling place. I think that that flexibility allowed for voters to be able to make choices that they otherwise couldn't make. Mm. There are counties in our area that have already opted into the Voters' Choice Act, uh, Sacramento and Yolo counties, for example. They've adopted it in prior years. What led to Placer County uh, deciding to opt in and go with the VCA model right now? Yeah, actually, Placer County was surrounded by counties that were VCA, not just Sacramento, but also El Dorado and Nevada. But our decision to jump into VCA really was a a staffing problem. Uh, We were concerned looking toward what our needs are in Placer County for volunteers in a traditional polling place model. Uh, We had about 250 polling place locations and we needed about 1,500 volunteers. And each year as we were preparing for elections, it became harder and harder to find people willing to set aside that day to volunteer. So uh, we saw that as a critical point of failure. If we go to VCA, we have 29 centers and we need about five to 600 volunteers. And so uh, really it was just making sure that we could be able to adequately staff the uh, polling places, the vote centers, for the crush of people in Placer County that are going to want to vote in person. Oh, so the need of volunteers goes down by roughly a third, which is a huge difference and and a good one for a county like yours. Given that you were surrounded by Voters' Choice Act counties like El Dorado County, Nevada County, Sacramento County, did you communicate with the registrars in those counties? Maybe some lessons learned that you could apply to Placer County? Absolutely. Uh, We are blessed with great uh, communication with all of our surrounding counties and uh, and also with uh, counties outside of our region as well. So uh, we worked with them. We worked with the Secretary of State's office to employ those uh, those lessons learned and uh, hopefully uh, avoid some of the mistakes that counties may have made early on in VCA. Uh, and then also uh, trying trying to implement some of the new changes that have come along since VCA was adopted back in 2016. One big one, of course, uh, being uh, Assembly Bill 626. And and what did that allow? Well, uh, that uh, new law allows for vote-by-mail voters, uh, people that want to use that vote-by-mail ballot option, to now be able to access a vote center if the county allows it and has the uh, capacity for it, to be able to vote that vote by mail ballot at the vote center. So uh, instead of um, filling out the vote by mail ballot and signing the envelope and dropping that off at a polling place on election day, uh, and most voters don't understand that those ballots are traditionally not counted on election day, they're counted in the days and weeks after the election. Now vote by mail voters uh, here in Placer County and in other counties are gonna be able to Uh, check in at the vote center, make sure that their ballot hasn't been cast uh, somewhere else uh, in the state, and assuming that they haven't voted already, they'll be able to open that envelope and watch that ballot be scanned right in front of them. In a county like Placer, where we have a lot of voters that uh, enjoy that in-person voting experience, but also enjoy the convenience of marking their ballot at home, this is kind of having the best of both worlds. We're going to be able to Uh, ensure that those voters are uh, able to see their ballots being counted in front of them, uh, but also uh, not have them be involved in having to get a ballot at the polling place on election day, marking it in the voting booth, and then turning it into that scanner. And you have let voters in Placer County know if you go to the county elections website, I mean, on your homepage, it says we are now a Voters Choice Act County. Here's what you need to know. When you do get emails and calls from people in your community, what are the biggest questions you're getting from voters in Placer County? Well, I would say that uh, one big question is, how can you uh, secure voting when you have 11 days of voting now or four days of voting in some of our vote centers? And so we invite those individuals that have those types of questions into our office so they can see our uh, chain of custody uh, procedures. They can see the logs that we uh, have to be able to ensure that Uh, There is still integrity and transparency in this process. Uh, And then, of course, we do have people that uh, are seeing the message for the first time as they open up that uh, voter information guide or their vote by mail packet. And 
they remember that they had to be uh, go to an assigned polling place and they're confused that they don't have an assigned polling place. And so uh, we have a phone bank of uh, individuals that are uh, taking those calls and explaining to people that they can go during work hours to maybe a polling place that's not close to their home, but close to their work and be able to cast their ballot that way if they would choose to. And to answer those questions, you need election aides. I mean, how is staffing looking like at Placer County? Uh, Does your office still need people to serve at vote centers during the primary? You know, we do. Uh, The uh, while we have reduced our number of election aides that we need, uh, it's always important for us to be able to have backups ready to be able to be placed in case uh, uh, elections aid calls and says, Uh, I'm sick or uh, something's come up or whatever, right? So we are always looking for people to uh, fill in as backups. And we still have a critical need in our Tahoe and our Alta uh, vote centers. We don't have the number of volunteers there that we would like to see. Uh, We have uh, the bare minimum and we want more than the bare minimum. So we're still actively recruiting people to be able to serve in some of our vote centers. Yeah, Placer County is a big county. It is diverse in landscape, goes way up in elevation, as you just uh, illustrated by mentioning Tahoe. When it comes to people who speak a different language, how is Placer County working to increase language accessibility? Uh, Excellent question. You know, uh, when we moved into the Voters' Choice Act, that meant that we did need to make some efforts to reach out to some languages that the Secretary of State's office have deemed to be um, uh, languages that we need to uh, uh, provide assistance in in Placer County. And uh, we have four languages in addition to English. There's Spanish, there's Punjabi, there's Korean, and there's Tagalog that we need to uh, have uh, voters uh, that are assisting uh, people that come to vote uh, available to speak in those languages at some of our vote centers. And so we are recruiting for uh, uh, for other languages and we do have videos and uh, materials available for those who speak those languages. If they want to serve, they can go to our website, they can see what we need, and we'd be happy to be able to, uh, to uh, place them at a vote center as well. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio, and if you're just joining us, we're talking with Ryan Ronco, Placer County's Registrar of Voters, about the county's recent adoption of the Voters' Choice Act and how the county is gearing up for the upcoming primary election. Now, when it comes to voter turnout, and I'm sure you are well aware, 2020 was, of course, during the pandemic. It was also an all-time record in California, roughly 80 percent voter turnout statewide. In Placer County, voter turnout for the general election was 88 percent. Given it's another presidential election year, do you have any anticipation or any estimate as to how voter turnout can be this year in 2024? Yeah, we always plan for 100% turnout. And of course, that is a lofty goal. Uh, But uh, for presidential primary elections, Placer County is closer to uh, a 50 to 60% turnout. So for the March uh, 5th primary, uh, we're on pace for that type of turnout where we've already had over 22,000 ballots returned to us in Placer County. That's about an 8% turnout. Uh, by the end of the week, will be over 10% turnout, assuming that the models are correct. Um, and uh, we're on pace to see somewhere between 50 and 60% turnout. But the primary election um, is uh, driven mostly by top of the ticket races. And uh, here in California, um, the top of the ticket races are starting to look decided already if you're looking at uh, the presidential elections at, at a national scale. So Uh, That could mean that uh, turnout won't get up to uh, our traditional highs of just over 60. Um, But definitely in November, everything is geared toward a very high turnout again. I think that um, 88% turnout that we saw in Placer uh, could be met and exceeded by uh, this November's election turnout. Uh, We're expecting... um, Uh, that people are going to want to have their voices be heard in not just that presidential election, but also in counties around the state, uh, local races like school board races and fire district races and maybe even some uh, city races as well. So 
uh, we expect the turnout's going to be very, very high in Placer and in the surrounding area in November. We've had conversations with registrars from other counties in previous elections, just talking about poll workers in recent years have faced increased harassment or threats for doing their jobs. And this is something that has taken place not only in California, but also across the country, uh, which can make that some people understandably concerned or nervous. What do you say to people who are volunteering and want to help? Yeah, Vicki, it's true that uh, many counties are seeing uh, that type of activity. In Placer, we've been, I think, fortunate. Uh, We haven't had uh, any reports of our poll workers being uh, harassed in that way. Uh, Certainly, our office has not. Um, I do believe that uh, here in, in Placer, we do have a lot of people that are concerned about election integrity. Uh, But they come in and they get their questions answered. And sometimes they don't walk away with uh, the full answer that they want to hear, but uh, at least they know that they uh, they can be heard here. Um, When it comes to talking to our uh, election aides and making sure that they feel uh, that they uh, are safe, they know that we're um, we have a process uh, here. They hear in training. Uh, it's reminded to them throughout uh, our uh, our contacts as we work towards Election Day uh, to uh, be mindful, be aware, to let us know uh, if they see something that's uh, uh, untoward. And then, of course, we have an, a, an emergency action plan with our local sheriffs, our local police, uh, so that if we do have problems, uh, we can deploy quickly. And our poll workers know about that as well. So. There's uh, uh, plans upon plans to make sure that we have not just a transparent election and an accurate election, but we have a safe election as well. Finally, if you're a hopeful voter, maybe you haven't registered yet. The deadline to register to vote for the primary was actually yesterday. But there are some important deadlines and dates that people can keep in mind if you wouldn't mind laying them out since there's just a lot of information out there. You bet. Yes, there there still technically is a deadline in registering in California, uh, and we did pass that yesterday. But that deadline is primarily for voters to be able to receive uh, materials by mail. If people missed that deadline, then they can still go into a vote center, a polling place, or into an elections office and be able to register then at that location and uh, and vote. Uh, it's important for voters to know that when they take advantage of what we call conditional voter registration, which is this period from today through Election Day, they need to be prepared to not just register, but also vote at that moment. Uh, and their ballot is set aside in a special envelope so that we can confirm that voter's eligibility before the ballot is counted. We have to make sure that that person hasn't voted anywhere else uh, in the state before the ballot is uh, before the envelope is opened and the ballot is counted. So uh, there are opportunities for people, even if they have not yet registered, to be able to participate. But you need to do your homework. You need to be able, able to plan ahead, research your candidates, make sure you know how you want to vote uh, before you enter that office, that vote center, that polling place. Ryan, thank you so much for the time. I, I know it is a busy time for you right now. You bet, Vicki. Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to talk to you today. Ryan Ronco is the Registrar of Voters in Placer County, updating us on how the county is gearing up for the upcoming primary on March 5th. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Inside on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. 
25 years ago, the murder of college student Matthew Shepard became one of the most notorious anti-gay hate crimes in American history. In October of 1998, the 21-year-old's body was found severely beaten and tied to a fence post in the Wyoming town of Laramie. His murder sparked a wave of activism that continues today. And that movement of safety and acceptance in the face of intolerance also includes expressions of art. Shortly after Matthew Shepard's murder, a theater company traveled to the rural town of Laramie to interview residents about how the attack affected them. And those conversations transformed into the play, The Laramie Project, which has been described as one of the most frequently performed plays in America. And its latest iteration will be at the UC Davis Department of Theater and Dance. It starts tomorrow, Thursday through March 2nd. Joining us is Scott Ebersold, the guest director of UC Davis's production of The Laramie Project. Good afternoon, Scott. Hi, thank you for having me. So you are at UC Davis because you are an artist in residence. Where did your love and your career in theater begin? Uh, it started for me in, well, I was first cast as Linus in The Great Pumpkin in second grade. But then there was a big interim. And, and then in high school, uh, I was uh, cast in the high school play and the high school musical. And I sort of felt like I found uh, my community and uh, a group of people who were like-minded and, and and it never turned back from that. The Laramie Project has been around now for over two decades. When did you first see and become aware of the Laramie Project? Uh, well, the original production of the Laramie Project. Uh, soon after that production, I started working for Tectonic Theater Company as part of the um, literary department, working with Moises Coffin and reading plays and covering performances and looking for their next project after the Laramie Project. Mm. When you mentioned the Tectonic Theater Project, it was this theater project along with Moises Kaufman. Mm -hmm. They approached writing this play by actually traveling to, to Laramie. Can you explain to people the the process that they went through to put this play together? Sure. Uh, they, they, there was about 10 of them that went to Laramie and they uh, interviewed uh, members of the community and collected, I think, over 200 interviews. And, and from what I understand, they had like stacks and stacks and stacks of transcribed interviews and they they sort of went through them as a as a company using this process called the moment work where they examine the different texts and pick the texts that they want to put into the play the ones that sort of tell the story that that emerges from their research so essentially they they interviewed hundreds of people and then just recreated and chronicled the aftermath of Matthew Shepard's murder, how it impacted not only a rural community, but also, I mean, just the international attention that was pointed to this very small town in Wyoming. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think they, they went in there, I, from what I understand, they went in there to, um, to, to write a play about Matthew. And what they discovered is that they were actually writing a play about a town. And the, the town was really affected by this media attention and, and, how they were being perceived. And a big part of the play is like, who are we as a town? And are, are we this or are we not this? You watched the original version. I mean, was this a play that you were always drawn to now that you're directing it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I am a similar age to Matthew, so it would be, or Matthew would be, or was at the time. And to me, it was very personal. I, I felt like uh, the the... I had never experienced something in my own lifetime that, that felt such like an uprising of like, we have to make a change. And, and, and I remember so clearly how I felt at the time when, when the murder happened. Mm -hmm. When you're putting the script to life at UC Davis w mm -hmm. with actors at UC Davis, what were the main challenges in approaching a script like this and also <laughs> taking it in as an audience member, being obviously personally affected by it, and right. then now you're in the director's seat? Um, well, uh, well, the the actors, there's eight actors and they play like over 100 characters. So, wow. Yeah. We, we did a lot of talking about how to differentiate characters and a lot of talking about acting and w what acting is. And, and then also, you know, uh, I talked to some people from the original production of the Laramie Project and they were like, they, they really wanted me to stress that, the, that there are light moments in the play and that, that especially the first 20 minutes are quite funny and like, don't be afraid of that. And we embrace the darkness and the light in mm. in the play. Eight actors for a community of over 100 people <laughs> that you're painting a picture of. I mean, what goes into using eight actors to create an entire community, not to mention outsiders who, who came in to cover what happened? 
Oh, right. They play those too. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, we talked about like different shifts in like body weight, like where this character car- carries their tension in their body and how to transform your body to like look like a different person or change your voice. And, and everyone wants something different. So when you want something different, it, you go after something in a different way and you have different tactics for getting it. So those are different ways that these eight people turn into the hundred people. How has it shaped the actors and the crew? I mean, opening <laughs> night's tomorrow. So I, I wonder if you could peel back the curtain a uh, little bit. Well, they started calling me chef like on the bear. So uh, uh, I so, love that show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, chef. And uh, so they, they've had a really great time. I think that it's been fun and challenging and has really stretched their muscles as an actor and they're super prepared for tomorrow night and um, I'm excited to share it with an audience. How has putting this play together and just the residency here at UC Davis shaped you? Um, you know, it, uh, I think it challenged me in, in a way that I really needed to be challenged, that the pandemic, it was very hard to be a theater director during that time and like being here and directing and teaching directing and then sort of talking about acting in in a rehearsal process, I really dug deep into like every training muscle that I had ever exercised in my life, and uh, and really thought about how to make theater in a way that I that reinvented the way I think about theater. I think for people who are going to be taking it all in starting tomorrow through next week, March second, um, they may be wondering who the play is suitable for. Is it for all ages? Um, well, it definitely deals with some themes of violence and murder. So I think that maybe uh, younger audiences, you might want to think about that, but certainly teenagers are not. Yeah. Mm. Given that it's been just over 25 years since Matthew Shepard's murder and the Laramie Project is still going in, in different versions, why is it so important to continue to tell this story today? Well, I mean, it's still happening. It just happened in Oklahoma like two weeks ago. There was the trans a sophomore student in a high school who was beaten and died from her, their head injuries. Um, it, it happened two weeks ago. It sort of hit the news like yesterday. And so we we felt like really struck by how similar the, the events of that case were to what happened to Matthew. I would imagine, you know, given that this is still happening today. And yes, you um, you have eight actors and you're a director and you're putting together a play. You probably can't compartmentalize, you know, what's happening in current events and the relevancy and how it resonates and the importance of, of continuing a play like The Laramie Project. Yeah, certainly. I mean, when we found out the, the news about Next Barrington, we it totally transformed our rehearsal last night. I felt like it was a much deeper and m- m- more resonantly felt experience watching the show last night. Mm. Do you have a favorite part of the play without giving too much away? <laughs> well, the, the characters, uh, they, they often are talking to these imaginary uh, interviewers out there in the audience, but there's this one moment in the play where the two characters uh, actually get to have fun with each other and uh, and they uh, swear a little bit and uh they have a really good time and we get to see them and see them having fun with each other. And I love that moment. Mm. When people are going to be taking it in, what do you hope they take away? Because the play is running for 10 days uh, starting tomorrow through Saturday, March 2nd. Um, I, I hope that they take away that, 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 they, that there's still more that we can do to make a change in the world, to make it safer. And and I also think that there is a huge element of hope in, in the play. And I think that if we can walk away with hope for a better future, that, then we've done our job. Do you want people to go in with a blank slate or do you want them to have um, something to keep in mind, a mindset when they go in to take the Laramie Project? As someone who has watched it yourself. Um, I, I think that people will go in and think that it's just completely about Matthew, but it's about a community and about how it affects the community. And and. Interestingly, like for me being an outsider coming to to Davis, it became kind of meta for me. It was like that, like I had traveled to a different place to put on this play, and it felt like I, I was a tectonic theater member traveling from New York City to another place, experiencing a whole new world while I was putting on a play about people who were actually doing that. Mm. Tell us about the Tectonic Theater Company. I know it played such an instrumental role in the Laramie Project. If someone hasn't heard about uh, them before. Sure. The, they're a theater company based in New York City. The Moises Kaufman is the artistic director. They're um, a number of company members who work together regularly. They, um, they, 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 this the Laramie Project was written by a number of members of the, of the, the project. 
because they went through an editing process to create the play. So they they also have a school where they train in their method of the, the moment work if you want to go learn more about it wow. from their website. So you're part of a 10-week residency. Mm-hmm. Um, you are, you know, a, a temporary Davis <laughs> <laughs> resident, um, but you've been part of a lot of other theater companies before and projects. Mm-hmm. What stands out to you about the, the, the theater production and the actors at UC Davis? Uh, well, we the... The, the talent is really quite exceptional. The students are really, really wonderful to work with, and the staff has been extremely helpful, and the, the design is really gorgeous, and it's just been a real joy to like play with uh, the, these, these toys, which I call them the, the toys of the theater, and uh, to work with this really talented group of people. What kind of reception did you get from the theater community at UC Davis when you know it was posted that, that there were auditions to be part of the Laramie Project. Well, the auditions were kind of uh, they they were remote. I was audition- I was in my apartment in New York City, and so they were people were appearing on my Zoom screen, and I was like, "How who how who are who are these people?" Um, but uh, they. I think they told me that they were afraid of me when they saw me on Zoom, but then they met me in person. And they realized that I was actually a nice guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Zoom doesn't really give you, uh, doesn't really capture the energy of a person. <laughs> that, that's for sure. Especially when you're nervous and you're auditioning for, for a play. Right. <laughs> Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Scott Ebersold is the guest director of the UC Davis production of The Laramie Project. It runs from Thursday, starting tomorrow, through next Saturday, March 2nd. And that is it for Insight today. You can learn more about our guests at Insight at capradio.org slash insight, actually. You can also subscribe to the Insight podcast. If you want to actually reach out to us, you can send us an email at insight at capradio.org. Thank you to producer Sarit Lashinsky and managing editor Arm Sarkissian. Our digital producer is Chris Feltz. Insight's technical director is Mark Jones. And our show music is produced by Adrian Gilmore. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.